0: Well, we are in Mark chapter 7 again. Back in the 7th chapter of Mark, we are making our way through this beloved gospel. Making our way, and as we are now, we, we will find that Jesus becomes a little bit more clear with what his mission is. Sort of the cross comes into focus as we enter now into sort of the halfway point of the book. And as we have seen throughout... Jesus does a lot of unexpected things throughout his ministry. He says things that are unexpected. He touches people that he should not be touching. And he hangs around people that he should not be hanging around. And he visits all these places that he shouldn't be. And he does it all under the guise. Not the guise. Under the reality that he is the Messiah. People keep seeing him and seeing him claim that he is the Messiah. And they keep seeing him do un y things. <laughs> he sometimes does offensive things. He sometimes does unconventional things. But I think all the times he is doing something surprising. And I think you're going to find in this chapter one of those instances where he does all three at the same time. (laughs) He does all three things in his response to this mother with the daughter that is demon possessed. He does something quite offensive and unconventional. But he's doing it for a specific reason. He's not just doing it to be those things. He's doing it to sort of shake everyone's attention, to get their attention, grab their attention, and show them that he is the Messiah, but their views of the Messiah were mistaken. He had come to not get a name for himself, not get any sort of acclaim for his own reputation, but he wanted them to see that their conventional uh, sort of uh, ways of religion had missed the mark. He had done that already, as we've seen. He's just finished preaching a sermon at length, uh, talking about how defilement really works. It's not about avoiding this thing or abstaining from that thing. You're defiled already, he says uncleanliness, it comes from within. It comes from within who you are. You can't make yourself clean any more than washing your hands really gives you the righteousness of the law, he was saying. We saw that last week. And the point being, you need a righteousness not of your own doing, a righteousness that comes from outside of you. And it's precisely what Jesus has come to give, come to give us in the gospel, a righteousness that is not ours. It's a righteousness that is, it's a righteousness that's God's. But what's really remarkable is that he follows up that sermon a sermon on defilement, shaking the sort of uh, pious notions of the Pharisees and the scribes as they came to him and his disciples. He follows up that sermon with an even more remarkable action here as he goes away out of Jewish country. He does another thing that the uh, socially accepted Messiah would not have done. Again, look at verse 24. And from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into an house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. I have two lessons this morning arising out of both of these scenes that come as Jesus leaves the borders of Israel and goes into Gentile country. The first lesson this morning is a lesson about a kingdom without bloodlines. A lesson about a kingdom without bloodlines here in verse 24 and then all the way through into parts of chapter 8 is Jesus' only recorded venture outside of Palestine. He goes a little bit north and west to the coast the Mediterranean, of the Mediterranean Sea to cities called Tyre and Sidon. Significant for two reasons. First because they are major commercial cities in a, a land called Phoenicia. Which is the Greek name for Lebanon. And he goes there and you can see what he's doing. He is seeking to be hid. Even though it says he could not be hid. He's seeking rest. He's seeking solitude. But it's interesting too to note that he goes to Tyre and Sidon. Because these are extremely pagan cities. Especially considered unclean by the Jews that Jesus would have been contemporaries with. If you research the area, this is the home of Jezebel, the evil queen against Israel. It is also the home of the Canaanites. A long, this, this area has a long storied history of opposition to the Jews. And here, this is where Jesus is seeking privacy and rest and solitude and some quiet. He would have no man know that he's in this region. Not because he's embarrassed to be there. But because he wants some rest from all of this ministry. We've seen it several times so far. He says to his disciples, let us depart. Let us get some quiet. They're seeking rest from the burdens of ministry. I also think that they're sort of laying low from the growing unrest that's surrounding Jesus. His name and his teachings As we've already seen from chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees have already started to consort with the Herodians to seek a way to destroy this Jesus. Herod has now learned about him. We saw that in chapter 6. That was before our little break for Advent, but that was back in chapter 6, if you remember. Herod has already started hearing about this guy. He thinks it's John the Baptist reincarnated, but it's this guy, Jesus, who is causing such a stir with his doctrine. He wants to remove him. The Pharisees want to remove him. There's Jews all around him that want to crown him as their insurrectionist leader against the Roman regime. So Jesus is seeking some quiet. He doesn't want all that attention. But of course, as we've seen several times before, Jesus' intentions are not to be, and his rest that he wants is he's hindered from finding it. Again, that phrase, he could not be hid. We saw this at the beginning. Mark makes an emphasis on getting you to sort of feel the amount of pressure from the crowds that Jesus felt. Everywhere he goes, fame is following him. People are thronging him, as Mark said elsewhere. He is uh, uh, filled with people all of the time. The word gets out here. Jesus is in a house, it says. He entered into a house... And would have no man know it. But he could not be hid. The word gets out. The Galilean miracle worker. He's in town. He's here. If you remember. Let me read you a verse. Again from chapter 3. Notice chapter 3 verse 8. Or let me read in verse 7. Jesus. If you remember chapter 3. Jesus has just healed a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He's again frustrated the Pharisees. And then in verse 7, but Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan. And they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. So perhaps he enters here and this famed man from before, they realize he's here. And all this hubbub and this stir starts about in in these regions. The miracle worker, he's here. This teacher, he's here. Immediately he's being compelled again to heal. Look at verse 25. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation. And she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. A Gentile, as it was in Pastor Nathan's translation. A Greek, a Syrophoenician. This Syrophoenician mother asks Jesus for help. Her daughter is afflicted with an unclean spirit. A demon has possessed her. She is desperate. She is desperate for her daughter. You can see it just in that word besought there. She besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her. She's begging. She's begging and pleading this Jesus to do something. Please, Lord, do something for my daughter. You can see she's desperate. She's ignoring sort of the social customs of the day. A woman is approaching a famous Jewish rabbi. Not something that often happened. She's ignoring that. But she's also ignoring all of the cultural stuff that went into the scene. You notice Mark spends a great deal of words at the beginning of verse 26. To squarely identify her nationality. She's a Greek. She's not just a Greek. But she's a Syrophoenician He pinpoints where she comes from. Why? It's to show you that she is casting off all of the racial and cultural biases and saying, I need your help. She's a Gentile going to a Jew, asking for some leniency, asking for some mercy. She is a desperate mother. She's... Persistently asking this Jesus to free and heal her daughter. To free her from this devil's possession and oppression. But that's where we get to verse 27. Which is probably the most unexpected verse you could ever imagine. Especially you could ever imagine coming from Jesus' lips. It gives a response that I don't think anyone expected. Let alone us, but let alone the people that were right around Jesus at this time. Notice, what Jesus said unto her, let the children first be filled. For it is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it unto the dogs. A mother comes to Jesus for help. As has been Jesus' pension so far, you would expect Jesus to say something or do something. And she would be healed on the spot immediately as is Mark's word. You notice he doesn't? He refuses to help this mother. He refuses. He doesn't do anything about her condition. In fact, he refuses help. And he even goes even further and calls her a dog. I can't help you. It's not right to take the children's bread and cast it onto the dogs. Definitely unexpected. Definitely something we wouldn't expect Jesus to say. But it's not unprecedented. As you uh, may know or may not know. The Jews were known for calling Gentiles during this time dogs. It was definitely a racially driven thing. They derided other nationalities. They were God's chosen people. And they had Jehovah's promise of salvation as their inheritance. Everyone else was worthless. Everyone else... Just a dog. They didn't care about anyone else's uh, uh, tragedy or pain. And you have to see too that dogs in this time and in this place of history in this part of the world are not the adorable creatures we cuddle up with and consider family. (laughs) It was a much different type of dog. These were mangy sort of scavengers that lived off of scraps on the streets. They weren't ones you took pictures with, family pictures of that. I sort of think, I don't know how accurate this is because I wasn't around her in the first century, but I sort of think that how they looked at dogs is sort of how we look at raccoons. It's just they're annoying nuisances that are gross and disgusting. You may not think that. I think that. <laughs> Maybe that was too harsh. I don't know. That's okay. But that's sort of how they view them. They view these dogs on the streets as just scavengers. you can see here that that's, that's the reality of what he's calling this woman. It's a racially charged statement. It's remarkable that Jesus would make this sort of expression while talking to a mother who is in obvious need. She's obviously desperate. She needs help. But Jesus doesn't do this because he's racist. He does this for a certain reason. He's articulating something he wants to be proved wrong on. He's articulating an argument that he wants to lose. Some preachers have softened this little statement to sort of point out that that he doesn't really mean dogs. That the word dogs here can be translated as pets or puppies or something like that. Which may be true, I, I'm not sure, but I, think it's, I don't think that's any less offensive to what Jesus' point is he's making. It doesn't make it any better. If I said to Natalie, I love you like my dog, I don't think she would react kindly to that. Whether I meant, oh, it, just a puppy though, I, I love you like my puppy. I don't think that that would go over very well. Regardless, the same I think is happening here. Just read the words. He calls this woman a dog. Refuses to help her. What is he doing? This isn't the Jesus we've come to know. This isn't the Jesus we expect. Again, he's articulating an argument he wants to lose. He's saying perhaps what everyone else around him, his disciples especially, are thinking They were Jews. They were familiar with all of the racial and cultural biases that existed in the day. And he wants to expose all of that racial righteousness that was so rampant in his day. He wants to expose it. And he wants to show them and give them a flesh and blood example. That you say this, but here's one of those people right in your face. And this is how your words sound. It's easy to view and it's easy to have a view and have an opinion of something or someone without having to see it. Without having to smell it. And here it is right in front of them. One of these people that they considered a dog was right in front of them. And Jesus goes along with their thoughts. And notice what happens. And she, verse 28, and she answered and said unto him, yes, Lord Yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this saying, go thy way. The devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out. And her daughter laid upon the bed. The Syrophoenician mother, she accepts the remark of Jesus. She says, yes, I know. I know I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve any of your aid, any of your mercy. You're a Jewish rabbi, respected by some, revered by some. You're famous in this part of the world. I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of any of your help, but you're the only hope I have left. She humbly accepts her title of dog. She expresses a humble faith. And her acceptance of who she was led to healing. Her daughter is freed from oppression. But you see, go to Matthew chapter 15. I want you to see, this is the parallel passage. I have strived to not always consort the parallels. Because I want you to see how Mark is presenting his argument. But this is one of those cases where I think it's really beneficial to see what Jesus does. As Matthew presents sort of a little bit of an expanded scene here. Look at verse 21. It's our verses again. Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried to him saying. Have mercy on me O Lord thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, uh, sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, And said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. You see, Jesus is articulating here the same thing. He's saying, I have come to be Israel's king. And she says, yes, I know, but I need your help, Lord. She presses into it she presses in to what she knew she was someone who was helpless and hopeless someone who didn't deserve any of the mercy she presses into it and what does jesus do he heals her daughter rather than see her as a person most of the people around jesus saw this woman as a dog jesus however sees her humanity Not her nationality. Look again at the word in verse 28. He says, Oh woman, great is thy faith. He doesn't see her nationality. He sees her humanness. Her bloodline, her ethnicity. That was not really what mattered. All that mattered was her faith. Faith. All that mattered was who she was believing in. She was believing in this master who she didn't really know, who had heard stories about. And she presses in and says, help me. And Jesus heals. Jesus helps. G. Campbell Morgan, the famous orator, he says this, Thus our Lord showed that in him all racial barriers were broken down and all racial privilege was as nothing. That where the soul in its elemental human agony approached him in faith, he answered. A human soul in agony and in faith approaches him and he answers that faith every time. We've seen it over and over again already in Mark. He is answering faith. Desperate faith. Hopeless faith that hopes in its last hope. This is what Jesus shows us. It's a kingdom without bloodlines. He's showing them that regardless of what you think, I can do a work even when I'm outside of the boundaries of Jewish reign. And such is our next point, because look at verse 31. Going down through the end of the chapter, back in Mark chapter 7, we have our second lesson in the text, which is a lesson about a kingdom without borders. Look at what he says. And again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. So now, Jesus, he's leaving Tyre and Sidon, leaving the coast of the Mediterranean. He's going south and east now. And he goes uh, onto the north side of the Sea of Galilee and he goes around it. He doesn't go across it like he had normally done several times at this point. He's going around the Sea of Galilee, and he goes to the hub of ten cities cities known as Decapolis, which might be familiar to you, because this is exactly where the demoniac of Gadara went after he was miraculously healed in Mark chapter 5. Remember, he goes back to Decapolis, and he starts preaching what Jesus has done He's going into another Gentile region where they know of this Jesus. Look at verse 32. Because they know of him, and he's there, and it says, And they bring unto him one that was deaf, and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. They hear of Jesus. They hear that he's here. They bring a friend who is deaf and cannot speak well, and they bring him before Jesus for healing. This isn't uncommon. Jesus has done this wherever he's gone. But what is uncommon, what I want you to see in the next couple verses, is how Jesus heals this man. Look at it. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears, and he spit and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven. He sighed and saith unto him. Ephthathah. That is be opened. And straightway his ears were opened. And the string of his tongue was loosed. And he spake plain. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them so much. The more that a great deal they published it. And were beyond measure. Astonished. Saying he hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf." To hear and the dumb to speak. It's remarkable. Jesus heals another man. But what is truly interesting. What stands out to me is just how he heals this man. First he secludes him. It says he took him aside. He takes him away from the crowds. Away from all the eyes. He wants to sort of get him alone. Again, it's suggestive that Jesus wasn't looking for notoriety. He wasn't looking for more attention in his ministry. He didn't want to cause more commotion by what was going to happen. But also, he says, again, look at verse 33. He put his fingers into his ears and he spit and touched his tongue. Up till now, he hasn't really touched anyone in this way to heal them. He has spoken words, or even just in the scene prior, he's said something from a distance and healed the Syrophoenician's daughter. Here, it's a very tactile miracle, is it not? He's using his fingers. He's touching his ears and his tongue. He's using the saliva from his mouth. He's engaging other senses for this deaf man. There's an even greater point though. But look. Look at verse 3. Or not verse 3. Look at again at verse 34. Because he also. He looks up to heaven. And sighs. He groans is that word. He's expressing a deep sympathy, a deep compassion for the people around him. But what is Jesus doing here? What why why all these theatrics? Why is he making such a big scene, especially if he doesn't really want to be seen? Why is he doing all these sort of theatrical things? It's interesting. Some commentators suggest I laugh that he had somehow lacked power in this region. That because he was in a Gentile country and he was a Jew that he somehow lacked power because there was less faith in this region. So he had to do something uh, extra, so to speak, in order to uh, accomplish these healings. He had to exert more of his divine power. Which I just chuckle at because I think that's woefully untrue. I don't think he's doing that. I don't think he's exerting more power, so to speak, than any other time he's healed people before. I think what he's doing is he's making a very clear distinction of who he is. He's showing them visibly and physically. He's giving them those sorts of signs of healing so he can draw everyone's attention to the fact, I am the prophecy fulfiller. Go with me. I'm going to read a couple verses from Isaiah chapter 35. Go to Isaiah 35. I'm gonna read all ten of these verses, but there's some phrases in here that should pop out to you as we read them. Notice this prophecy. Isaiah 35:1 says, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose, and shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with the joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon. Shall be given unto it the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. And the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands. And confirm the feeble. Say to them that are fearful of heart. Be strong. Fear not. Behold your God. Will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame man shall leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert, and the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water, and the ha- inhabitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes, and an highway shall be there. And a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein, though no lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon, it shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to make the wilderness and the solitary place glad, the place that is parched to become a pool. To become a, a, a place abundant with life. And notice he has come to unstop the ears of the deaf. And to unloose the tongues of the dumb. In the place called Lebanon. This is what he's doing. <laughs> he's showing them this is what I have come to do. He has come to make all things new, not some things, all things. And then in all places, I am the Savior of the world. This deaf man from Decapolis, I think, serves as another living parable of all those that are around him, symbolizing both the ignorance of those around Jesus as to his true mission, that he's exclusive to Israel. And he's essentially saying, unplug your ears. I am not just Israel's king. I am the world's savior. He's also, I think, showing his willingness to stoop and to save people right where they are. Right in the midst of all their uncleanness. Right in the midst of where they are considered outcasts. He goes to that place. He touches and he heals. It's as if he's saying, my kingdom has no borders. My kingdom has no borders and wherever I am, salvation is there too. Wherever I am, healing is in the midst. Wherever I am, salvation can be found. In the parched place. In the place that is That is solitary. In all those places he has come to bring salvation. In all those places he has come to bring redemption. See, geography and nationality are nothing to the Savior who saves to the uttermost. As it says in Hebrews chapter 7. He saves completely. And here he's reorienting the mission of the Messiah beyond what everyone expected. He's not just Israel's king. He's the world's savior come to redeem the entire world from its sins. Washing them away in the blood of his own. His own blood that he sheds on the cross. He's showing them that my kingdom has no bloodlines, it has no borders. All that matters is faith. Whether you are part of Israel, whether you are part of Lebanon, whether you are part of the United States of America, all that matters is your faith. Is your faith in this Jesus who heals the entire world through him being broken? Is your faith in this Savior who has come to redeem you from your sins? See, I love this. Because he might, Jesus, yes, he came as Israel's king, born in a manger. But he died as the world's Savior who came and washed away all of the world's sins. He washed us white as snow. By the shedding of his blood. He makes all things new. This strong God. Who as it says in Isaiah 35.4. Comes and saves. This is I think what he's doing. Back in Mark 7. Where it says they, they have this Revelation. He hath done all things well. This is God's reputation, so to speak. This is God's resume. Jesus' resume is he does all things well. He makes all things new. All of it is made new by the power of his grace. He's your savior this morning. Regardless of what your past looks like or regardless of where you are presently, this Jesus saves. He comes to you this morning in a place where he probably shouldn't be, an unexpected place. And he does something even more unexpected. He is saying to you, I have taken your place. I have come to be your ransom. I have come to be your rescue. I have come to not just not just touch your filth, but become your filth and die for it. He touches this unclean man. He becomes your uncleanness and he dies for you. He has done all things well. This is Jesus your savior, Israel's king, but he's your Savior, is your faith in him this morning? Where does your faith lie? In this Jesus who goes beyond the borders he was expected to, who makes a radical statement about bloodlines and says, everyone can come to me by faith, or is your faith in yourself? Again, what you can accomplish and who you are and what you have been able to do in your life. Jesus is saying here this morning, I am your only savior. I am your only hope. Put your faith in me. Let us pray.